Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations with artists, I invite you to come visit David's Werner Gallery exhibitions in person. We're located in New York, Los Angeles, London, Paris, and Hong Kong. New exhibitions open each month. Plan your visit at davidswerner.com. I'm Hua Xu. I'm a writer and the author of Stay True, a memoir. From David Zwerner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about artists and the way they think. Part of what I did was to write the book I would have wanted to have stumbled upon during this period of my life to sort of show that there's a there's another way to be, or there's there are ways to turn these these feelings of grief into creative energy. I'm Helen Molesworth, your host for this season. Every episode features a conversation with artists, curators, writers, designers, philosophers, filmmakers, and musicians about what it means to make things today. Hey everyone, it's Helen. In this episode, I got to interview one of my favorite critics at The New Yorker, Hua Su. Hua is also the author of Stay True, a memoir about friendship and loss that won a Pulitzer Prize in 2023. I love to stay true because it's a book that shows us how art and culture is the stuff that gets us through the hard times. I hope you enjoy this conversation. I know I really did. Hi, Hua. I'm so happy to have you on the podcast today. Well, thanks so much. It's a, it's a real thrill to be here talking to you. So I'm just going to jump right in. I've got some questions for you about the book, A Stay True, a memoir. It won a Pulitzer Prize. Congratulations. How'd that feel, by the way? Pretty strange. Uh, you know, you certainly don't go into any project expecting it to get, you know, these kinds of awards. Like I certainly didn't start writing the book thinking that it would be a book, you know, no less be like a book that won prizes. So uh, yeah, it was like really humbling, really grateful, but it's just above all, just very weird to me. Stay True is a book about friendship and the tragedy of your college friend, Ken, being very cruelly and capriciously killed in a carjacking. But it's also a book about memory as a kind mm -hmm. of active process, a, a kind of anti-forgetting, you know, really working to remember so not to forget. It's a book that takes place in the kind of title shift from the analog to the digital. There's lots and lots of talk of zines and mixtapes. Uh, it's a book about culture and taste. It's a book about a baggy, somewhat ill-defined category called Asian American. It's a book that sort of starts out feeling like it's going to be about immigrant life and migration and then kind of pivots into something else. But I wanted to talk to you just to start off talking a little bit about you um, as a writer and how you came to craft this rather extraordinary book that packs so much into a rather short and eminently readable form. At one point, the narrator, who is you, says, quote, I'm going to write about all of this one day, full stop, close quote. And 
reading it, I, I was really struck that like this book feels like a life's work. Well, Helen, first of all, thanks for that. It was, uh, I, I was taking notes as you were talking because there are aspects of your description that struck me as so true, but they weren't things that had ever occurred to me. You know, like when you oh. describe it as about anti-forgetting, that's very different than just not forgetting or remembering. You know, it's sort of that refusal to forget, the sort of like ethical obligation to not forget. And I think that's something that really drove me through the process, not necessarily the process of the book, but just the process of life from 1998 on. Mm. Uh, you know, I was 21 when, when these events happened, and I had no real aspiration to become a writer necessarily. I, I thought I would just have, I don't know, be like a lawyer or researcher or something, and that this would just be something I would work on in my spare time. Why I immediately turned to writing in a journal the day after, I couldn't really understand. It just seemed like a place to go, like a place mm. to be present, but not really be present. I felt this like kind of archival obligation to just kind of never forget on behalf of someone who wouldn't be there to, to share in these memories. But yeah, I think that that idea you, you just put out there of anti-forget, like that is very much how I felt. And mm. I think the, the sort of collateral effect of that is that I couldn't let go of certain things or, or I began to trust memories that probably weren't as, as solid as, as the life, you know, that they corresponded to, if that makes sense. Like if you, you keep telling yourself the same story about like, oh, I remember that I remember we used to do this over and over, but as I got older, I realized, you know, how many times could one have done something in, over the course of three years for it to become routine? You know, like maybe we only went to that one burrito spot twice, but in my mind, I'd played it over so frequently that it became like this, this core memory, right? And so I think when I set out to write it, uh, you know, a lot of this began immediate aftermath, like summer between our junior and senior years like we find out that this happened and one of the first thing I, I did was to buy a journal and start writing down writing letters to him letters to other people scraps of memories annotating inside jokes you know just things that i never wanted to forget but very everyday things and mm. i eventually you know wrote the eulogy in that journal i didn't necessarily think that it was book I was writing or even a story. It was just these, these isolated scraps. It wasn't until years later when I would try and sit down and fashion a narrative out of it that I kind of understood how fickle memory can be. Yeah. Um, you know, just sort of how things you remember reflect more upon you as the person doing the remembering than perhaps like the substance of those memories. So when I actually sat down to write this, I guess, as a book or as a, as something I would share, one of my rules was that I would just sort of write it from memory. I tried not to like fact check the book, if that makes sense. Um, the first, first time I wrote it, like I didn't go back to my friends and say, Hey, remember that night? Like, what do you remember about it? Because I realized so much of why I was hung up was this, the result of, I don't know, my memories and, and kind of how in the absence of someone to share memories with, you just sort of become beholden to these stories you tell yourself. 
I thought the book really excels at capturing both the logic and the passion of one's late teens and early 20s. And I was interested in the way in which you were able to almost toggle between the kind of vocabulary and framework that I think you have now as a full-fledged adult with the vocabulary and framework that you have during that period. I was very envious as a writer about how you were able to to do that. I, I, I find that a very, very hard thing to do about writing about one's past. You talk about how in the, in the now times, there's a kind of loss of free time and boredom. Like mm-hmm. one of the things the internet does is eliminate boredom. And I wondered if there was something about that free time and boredom that allowed you to to speak so convincingly about that about that kind of logic and passion that you have in your 20s that you just that we sort of lose over time yeah i it's something i think about a lot you know a lot of my book is set in the past and it's i guess retrospective like technically speaking it's it's retrospective right but right i tried not to make it too nostalgic um, even though I think people, particularly people that are like in their forties, maybe feel a sense of nostalgia when they read it because there's space for them to kind of insert their own experiences or think about like adjacencies. Uh, you know, I've, I've been teaching college students for about 15 years and I always, I'm always very sensitive to what it's like for an older person to tell a younger person about what it was like for them to be young. I tried not to romanticize what it was like for me to be young, but I wanted to convey certain, I don't know, textures, certain like governing dynamics. And one of them was just boredom. Right. And, and I think that that idea of free time is something that it's hard to defamiliarize unless you've experienced it. The kind of world building challenge for me was to describe this situation where you know like what was it like to be bored in like 1996 <laughs> well, right what what did it force you to do what was um, what were the what were the fantasies you had of escaping it i was really struck by what i found to be the admirable lack of sentimentality or nostalgia in your descriptions of the past and that came out for me particularly in the way in which the book is about friendship, you know, you describe Ken, he's Japanese American, he's not an immigrant, his parents aren't immigrants, so, but he's also kind of like a normie, like mm-hmm. he's a normal dude. Yeah. To your self described, you describe yourself as a contrarian radical. And you write the following description of both of you. Uh, you say, he saw people as innately good and open-minded. I saw a bad CD collection as evidence of moral weakness. And I can't lie, I laugh the bitter laugh of self-recognition there. <laughs> um, I'm definitely on the you side of things. Um, I too have been known to judge people quite harshly around matters of taste. And I thought, God, we rarely talk about friendship and taste. And 
you really write this book, sort of a network of like taste and affect, belonging. I guess I have a whole battery of kind of pedestrian questions about this. Like, do you still feel this way? Do you still judge people this way? Is this the loneliness of, of the critic? <laughs> yeah, that's a, I mean, I think about this so much because I, you know, I teach at a liberal arts college, which should be kind of ground zero for people judging each other for, for their tastes and whatnot. But I do find that they're more, um, you know, compassionate, open-minded, however you want to say it, towards one another. It, it seems as though taste is always a proxy, maybe a distant proxy for politics. And now mm. politics is the division that we feel more comfortable leaning into, you know, um, especially when, when you're younger. But I, I think one of the reasons I write less criticism now is because I have also, you know, like softened in old, old age, or, or maybe I'm just more aware of the influence that things like, you know, the, the sort of like formative friendship in the book is about me years later, sort of coming around to this perspective that Ken had and that, that was like expressed in his taste too. Like there's, there's something a friend of ours said to me in a letter that, um, I didn't write, I didn't print it in the book, but it's something I think about a lot. And I think I was just like really sad for whatever reason at some point in the 2000s. And then my friend wrote to me like, you should put on one of those like happy ass power ballads that Ken used to listen to. And I think it is just sort of me over time becoming more comfortable with just kind of those, those kinds of expressions of big emotions or, or sort of like, um, you know, songs that I just would have never acknowledged liking when I was younger. And so I think having, having written this book where sort of part of it is me coming to terms with like, yeah, there's some good Pearl Jam songs. Like I have a much harder time now exercising that sense of critical. I mean, I don't even know if it's critical scrutiny, but just sort of, of, of like snobbish judgment that, um, that I once had or I once held on to. There's a lot of talk in the book about zines and zine culture and uh, mixtapes, um, both of which I also lived through and made and received as gifts. And those things were so absorbing, so powerful. Yeah. You know, I mean, talk about anti-boredom. Like you could, you could spend a whole day making a mixtape, you know, I mean, just epic epic amounts of concentration um to the, to then basically give it away as a gift you know yeah. with no payment this different kind of economy of gift and and you and your book actually talks about marcel Moss at, at certain points and the the economy of the gift and i i wondered if um if you had a version of both the past and criticism is somehow being bound up with the logic of being a being a fan of you know like did did zine culture and mixtape culture is that what like pushed you into criticism or is it your fandom that pushes you into criticism in a way like how do you think you moved from making those things to being the kind of writer you are today Wow, that's a that's a really fascinating question because 
I do feel like there is this tension there between just being a fan and being a critic that I, I didn't really dwell on when I was younger. You know, for certain people, maybe in certain settings, like ex- intelligence is expressed through being critical. You know, like every graduate seminar is, revolves around the person who can make the most like, right. critically withering remark. Uh, right. That's like the mark of, of smartness. I remember how formative it was to make zines and to sort of circulate them and send them to people. And, you know, you didn't pay for them. You just sort of like, I'll send you mine. You send me yours. And after I finished a draft of the book, I was reading some old zines. And I was reading the reviews because like zines would always have reviews of other zines. And they were often so harsh towards one another. You know, like I had completely forgotten that I sent my zines to a lot of people whose zines I liked and that their reviews were like, yeah, this, this is like actually like not very good, but if you want it, send a dollar to this, this guy Hua in Berkeley, you know? And, and that even though I remember it as this community, it was a community, but it was also one where uh, there were these standards, you know, and, the, and that we, were, we, we had no problem enforcing those standards like pretty, in, in pretty tough ways upon each other. Um, and so I think that that was pretty formative for me, just this idea that like, you're making this thing, you're doing it for free. You know, you're not really doing it as a career. You're making these zines, you're distributing them, but you have to have a kind of critical presence. You have to be a kind of discriminating presence on the page. Um, and I think that's, I think that's one place where maybe my interest in criticism, um, first took root just this idea that these zines were you know about alerting you to things you may not have known about but they also were these expressions of of taste and discrimination uh whereas i feel like now i'm more into just being a fan there are two really big moments in the book and i want to talk about both of them so the first one is ken dies this is clearly traumatic But one of the things I found so compelling about the book was that it didn't resort to trauma as a lens through which to narrate or interrogate either the event or your memories of the event. Is the, is the refusal of trauma as a kind of pop psychology term part of your contrarian radicalism? (laughs) (laughs) To me, I was sort of acknowledging this traumatic effect. Because, you know, the book is about the kind of usefulness or not of language or just sort of like these blockages or um, even this kind of fascination with other people's traumas, right, that, that take root. But I don't think I used the word, or if I did, it wasn't until kind of uh, a scene that's set later. Uh, and that's because that language wasn't available to me in 1990, in the fall of 1998. I think I allude to this in the book, but it's, it's sort of hard to remember, but back then in the late 90s, discussing mental health or, or wellness or trauma, these just weren't necessarily in the mainstream vocabulary. Right. You know, so it was just something shitty that had happened, you know, like something profoundly shitty, but it was just something that um, 
we could only understand as just this extremely evil, terrible thing. Like we didn't really understand its effects on us as traumatizing or, or that we were in the throes of trauma. And it wasn't actually until a few years later when I was in graduate school talking to a friend, she was sort of encouraging me to go talk to like a therapist at school. And she said, well, you guys, you guys like experienced something traumatic. And I said, no, like Ken experienced something traumatic. We just happened to, you know, be, be like around, you know, like I didn't understand maybe like what the term meant because I think in 2023, we have that awareness that you can be kind of, um, you know, that, that things affect us in ways that we can't necessarily articulate. And that, that doesn't mean that we were kind of materially affected or, or sort of like physically affected, but that can have these, um, um, sort of like ripple effects. But I didn't, I don't know. I just didn't understand it that way. And I don't think a lot of people I was friends with did. So it seemed it would have been a little ahistorical, I guess, to have mm. drawn that language or, or to invoke that language directly in the book. But I think I even had difficulty acknowledging depression back then. Mm. You know, I think um, in the book I write about how I didn't think I was depressed because I thought people who were depressed were just uh, couldn't get out of bed and, you know, were, were just sort of staring at the ceiling all the time. That was just sort of my mental mental picture of what that meant. Whereas I was, you know, trying to pack my days with, with as much activity as possible just to tire myself out. So I think that I tried to stay within that kind of the imagination available to who I was, say in like 1995 or 1998 or 2000. And um, yeah, the notion of trauma just wasn't available to me then. I really relate to what you're saying. And I... I vacillate between finding the new ways that we talk about mental illness and trauma and, you know, PTSD and all of this. Some ways I find it really enlightening and freeing. And in other ways, there is part of me that's not unlike your parents, as you describe mm -hmm. them in the book, which is like, you know, the world is a terribly cruel place and yeah. the task of living is to get on with it, yeah, yeah. you know, and that, that, that there's a hard truth there. Um, and I wonder, you know, do you think you were able to write the book in some ways because you metabolized that hard truth? Yeah. Over time, I think I just became fixated with that past and returning to and dwelling on it and thinking about all of these little things that happened along the way and, and kind of wondering what could have been, even though none of those things would have, I don't know, who knows, who knows what would have happened had, had different decisions been made that night. Um, and that I think over time, I realized that what my parents meant when they said that, you know, like life is terrible and like, you know, but it's the sort of the task of the living to continue living was that, you don't necessarily abandon someone in the past by imagining who they would be moving forward. You know, you, you sort of can take these lessons and, and these experiences and sort of these ghosts and move forward in ways that don't diminish the experience or don't diminish 
the sadness or the the sort of sense of loss. Um, and that's something that I don't think I consciously understood as desirable or available to me until I actually sat down to write the book. But I think part of the book was trying to reconcile what happened, but also, you know, sort of what my parents told me, which was you, you have to kind of keep going as best you can. So that gets me to the other, the second defining event. I really have no idea what you're about to I say. Know, I, I, I sort of suspect <laughs> you don't. And that is the moment where you go to the office hours of one of your professors. Okay. <laughs> right, yeah. And you go a couple of times and... And finally, this guy says to you, hey, man, like I'm paraphrasing here, you can't just come here. You've got to get serious and do some work. Like you've got to go and actually write something yeah. and read something. And then we can have the kind of conversation yeah, you think yeah. you want to have. And this was the topic of like a, like a really epic conversation one great summer night um, with a big table of friends of who many of whom had read the book. Um, and I guess I wanted to wait, ask... Wait, hold on. I, I'm so fascinated here. Like, what were, what were the sides of the conversation? Well, it was a conversation about the crit in art school. I see. You know, my generation of people who went to art school, the crit was ruthless. You know, a work I put out on view and it could get just utterly dismantled. Yeah, yeah. And today's crits... They have, they're kinder and gentler. And it's not that today's crits don't go south, and, but there's way more emphasis on saying what's good about the work or strong about the work before anyone says anything critical at all. Right, right. And so there was a debate happening at the table about what do you want from a professor? What do you mm. want from a crit? Yeah. And this instance in your book was brought up as emblematic of the teacher who says like hey man like go and go and get real go and do something yeah i think the book was being held up as example exhibit a right like this is what happens when you have a teacher who tells you don't just sit in here and flap your gums at me go and do the work and here you have this book that is emblematic of doing the work um and i guess i just wanted to ask you a little bit more about that how you navigate that water of the the toughness of of making the work of doing the thing of writing this book wow you know you just made so many connections that um i had not it, you know now to hear you describe it like it it makes perfect sense that like the book itself is also uh, an instantiation of that thing of like you can't just kind of dwell on things you got to just go out and like do the thing itself yeah i remember that scene very vividly i think i was just seeking mentorship and my mentor did not want to give me the form of mentorship i wanted which was just i guess uh, un unearned encouragement like i would i would say that i'm more of a proponent of like the praise sandwich than <laughs> than just kind of the the um uh, kind of coming in hot and that's sort of sort of how I would write when I was writing my scenes I was I was very comfortable with being withering in writing but probably less so in person but I think now that I am in a position of that professor um, in the book 
you know, like I'm the one now who, mm-hmm. who students come to office hours to talk to. I think I'm more sensitive to the challenges of their daily existence. Does that make sense? Like, I, I don't think that my professors had much access to or interest in, in our lives outside of school. I think now we get so much more of their life, whether we want it or not. Mm. And that it, it sort of has engendered a kind of sympathy for me uh, on my part. But yeah, I think it just, I think it's, there's probably different needs on the part of the student than when I was an undergrad. Mm. And it's, it's a balancing act, just trying to figure out what those needs are and how they change. My last question for you, I came away with a really strong sense that what the zines and the mixtapes what art and literature and poetry and music, what it's all for in the end is actually, it's what gets us through the hard times. And I felt kind of lucky to, you know, that I had culture in that way. And I wondered if, if you did too, if the book is, for me, the book is partly like a book that that's an argument for why those things are so very, very necessary. I think I started writing the book for pretty selfish reasons or, or just sort of reasons that were just so intimate that I didn't think they would register with anyone else. But, you know, throughout my whole life, and I think at, in an accelerated way since the late 90s, I do go to record stores or bookstores in search of art not just for pleasure, but just to kind of, you know, deepen or to interpret experiences that are, are sad, you know, or, or mournful. Like, I mean, I have a very vivid memory, like that around 1998, going to Amoeba, I would always go at night in search of the album that I thought could explain how I felt back to myself. You know? mm. And one of the records I picked up was Pharaoh Sanders' Jewels of Thought. And there's this song, uh, Huma La, which is very similar to Creator as a Master Plant. Like it's just this mm-hmm. piece that is so anarchic and stormy, but also blissful and peaceful. And it was one of the first times where I, where it worked. Like I went to the record store tonight, I picked up a record. I'm like, this is, this is how I feel. There are aspects of the song that are how I want to feel too. Mm. And I think part of what I did was to write the book that I would have wanted to have stumbled upon during this period of my life to sort of show that there's a there's another way to be or there's there are ways to turn these these feelings of grief into uh, creative energy or to to or or an energy of of or an ethos of love or mentorship that you you take into your life elsewhere um and so I hadn't thought about the book as this kind of expression of like how art or culture can help us through these hard times but it's certainly why i would consult art and culture and and books and records and things and it's humbling to think that that could you know be the case for someone else too with this book yeah i think that's very much what this book is and will probably i i bet will become for people um I want to thank you again so much for coming on the podcast to talk about your really wonderful memoir, Stay True. I'm, I'm just so glad to have been in dialogue with you. Thanks so much, Helen. This was a, a real 
real delight. Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. If you like this episode, please follow, rate, and review us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It really does help the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you join us here next time.